So hopefully you had a nice rest and a nice lunch and the stretching of your brain has been able to relax because we're gonna go there again. Now I heard some, some whispers and some rumors that it was a little uh, high shelf <laughs> last night. And uh, I tried to warn you, and this is going to happen again. This is the nature of what we're dealing with. But I want to give you guys a little bit of um, hopefully relatability. And I want you to understand, like when I read, for example, something by Karl Marx or one of these Marxists on down the line, I don't even consider having read it the first time that I read it because I actually don't know what in the heck it says. Um, it sounds very weird to say this. It sounds almost like something they would accuse you of if they maybe accused people of things that they're actually doing, which we call the iron law of woke projection. But they write in kind of coded language. And it's not just coded language, it's the fact that the words that they use, they're not just complicated, they have a whole bunch of things that they imply that you don't realize the first few times. So usually for me, it's about the fifth or sixth time that I read one of these things usually having to go read other things in between that I start to get an idea of what they're actually talking about. And so if it feels like it might be a little bit hard to grasp some of these concepts, um, it is. Uh, I would strongly encourage you to do the best you can, but I would also encourage you to go back and revisit this when you get a chance, if and when you have time, uh, when the videos are out and available, because you're not gonna get a lot of this on the first go. I'm literally describing to you an alien way of thinking about the world that's been with us, depending on how you want to mark the clock, for at least a century and a half, but arguably since the snake lied in Genesis. And you didn't know that this other alien way of thinking about the world was tagging along and grafting itself into things that sound like they're perfectly normal, like, I don't know, the government or something. So... Bear with me, but let's reorient ourselves to last night. So last night we talked about the dialectical faith of leftism. I introduced the idea of, he of uh, Georg Hegel and his dialectic, his dialectical trinity we talked about. And I connected that to the idea of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's social contract, which very gratefully Mike talked about this morning. And so you got an even deeper and I hope clarifying dive into the relevance of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's uh, leftism in this. And today what we're going to actually look at is where these things come together with Karl Marx's actual creation of what we would call dialectical leftism if we wanted to be very broad in general, or just the theology of Marxism. The technical title of this talk, which is not in your program, is Marx's Ontology of Man and the Talos of History. So you can tell it's going to be light. <laughs> it sounds hard, but it's not. Marx had a very particular theory of what it means to be human. That's Marx's ontology of man. His whole religion's based off of this conception of what it actually means to be human, except for it also the telos of history. History has a purpose. For a long time, I erroneously thought people would say, well, if Marxism's like a religion, what's its God? And I'm history. History itself is its God. History, the unfolding of all of man's activities from the beginning of whatever we consider man through the present into the future to the end point of history when finally everything becomes perfect. And the purpose of history, the telos of history, this is history with a capital H. It's a history you have to be on the right side of to be satisfactory to the woke. It's a history that you, by being here on the wrong side of, according to them, is 
the project, it is the purpose, moving history along to its end as quickly as possible is the purpose of being. And that's arriving at the utopia, where history ends because we no longer have contradictions between one another. We no longer have contradictions, as we talked about last night, between the theoretical idea and the practical idea, the theory and practice, the ideas of how the world should work and how it gets implemented. Those contradictions are all worked out and resolved dialectically. So I want to reorient also to something that, that Mike showed yesterday on the screen, the Soros, George Soros's quote from The Alchemy of Finance in 1992, because it contextualizes what we talked about about Hegel yesterday. Soros wrote, and I'm not going to give the whole quote, science, it drives me crazy because I feel like the word the should be in front of this, but he says, scientific method seeks to understand things as they are, while alchemy seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. So if you don't remember anything else about Hegel, except that he had some dialectic that's important somehow, which you probably should remember that part, you should remember that Hegel was an alchemist. And if you forget the dialectic, you should remember that Hegel was an alchemist. Scientific method seeks to understand things as they are, while alchemy seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. Okay, that's how George Soros wrote this down in 1992. But let's translate ourselves back maybe to 1807 when Hegel was writing the Phenomenology of Spirit, and how would he spell it? He would use the words that he used, which I introduced to you yesterday, the German words, Verstand and Vernunft, to understand and reason, higher level reason, that composed his Wissenschaft, his science, his system der Wissenschaft, his system of science. And he would say, Verstand, understanding, seeks to understand things as they are, while Vernunft, reason, seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. In the middle part of this whole story, which we might talk about some tomorrow, we have the critical theorists, and Max Horkheimer very nearly wrote this in 1937 when he described the difference between what he called the critical theory and the traditional theory, which he had separated the concept of theory in an essay in 1937 into these two branches, and he would say the same thing. You would say traditional theory seeks to understand things as they are, while critical theory seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. So there's this continuity from Hegel through Marx to Marx's acolytes in the cultural and critical Marxists down to, for whatever set of reasons, George Soros in 1992, with the same exact sentence, with the same exact content, with the same exact meaning. There's a lower level of scientific understanding that's merely to understand what we see in the world, and there's a higher level of system of science, which I'm gonna argue is their theology, that we use to transform the world through dialectical transformation. We're going to take the world as it is and transform it into something it is not yet and make that concrete and actual. We maybe only can envision it in the abstract right now and we have to deal with the contradictions of our, our imagination by seeing what we see in the world. The theoretical idea meets the practical idea. We have a contradiction and we're going to try to transform the world as it happens to be now, as a contingent state of the moment, into what it could be to make it the actual state of affairs later. That's the Hegelian dialectical project. It's at the heart of the dialectical leftism that is Marxist theology. Rousseau is, is necessary for this because Rousseau orients all of this in the left direction 
which is toward a kind of a magical rule by the social contract. Mike talked about that extensively this morning. Of course, I talked about it last night, but the idea is that we're willingly giving up some of our freedoms to the greater good, which leads us to somehow attain greater freedom. In other words, it emancipates us from that which is restrictive of us, where we think that we're too legalistic, too reasonable, too whatever, and it confines how we have to be. And we're going to liberate ourselves to be our more true nature selves and become conscious of our true selves underneath. That occurs when the social contract is made right because everybody willingly agrees to it. So in a social circumstance, so we are made free by becoming part of the collective. And if this sounds like a pile of BS contradiction, it's because it is. It actually is. But what we're actually going to achieve is we're not going to be stuck having to live this reasoned, ordered, structured, constrained life of literally dominance of reason or sovereignty of logos. We'll free up the other aspects of man's true humanity like imagination, emotions, and the senses, which we will not use just to perceive the world, but also to engage in, as they love to say, and they say repeatedly, sensuous experience. And I'll let you... Follow that rabbit trail in your head for a second. So what, what Marx is doing to create the theology of Marxism is he's actually importing the leftism of Hegel. Or sorry, of Rousseau. He's importing the, the leftism of Rousseau, exactly like Mike was talking about this morning, and he's packaging it up in the dialectical box created by Hegel. So he's putting Rousseau's leftism in the Hegelian dialectical box he mixes it in because he was a strict materialist with Fowerbox materialism, as we mentioned last night. In other words, that there is no spiritual realm. And this is going to be very, very key. So the big concepts that we're going to pay attention to today is what does it mean to be a man? That's going to be one. Another big concept we're going to talk about today is what is the purpose of being a man and what's the purpose of history, therefore? And then the third is how do we demystify reality? Because the mystifications that he brought to the picture from... Uh, from Fauerbach become central to the way Marx reconceives of these things and crams the leftism of Rousseau into the uh, very obviously theological box of Hegel's uh, heretical dialectic. Like I said, history becomes a central object of this. The whole program, the telos of history, the purpose of you is to advance history. So the question becomes, how do you advance history? Your role, your duty is to advance history, but not arbitrarily, not in some willy-nilly way, not in some natural or organic way, but rather to a directed endpoint, to, to a directed goal. Even if we don't know what it looks like, we know that it's liberated. We know that it's emancipated. We know that it's free from the things that constrain us and imprison us in the world that we find ourselves in. And at that point, History has become advanced to the point where it's become idealized. It's become perfected. One might say it's hit its absolute state. And we arrive at a place where man has been made dialectically to live in society. We're no longer talking about ideas. We're no longer talking necessarily about an absolute idea as a great spirit or something out there. Man has to be made to live in society, which is ultimately the Rousseauian vision but now we're going to package that up in terms of the Hegelian dialectic to advance history to its absolute state. So the goal is to figure out what is the absolute state of man and the society he lives in, because we don't have the absolute idea, which is the actualization of God, that then shows us what it's supposed to look like, and it just manifests from that, which is kind of what Hegel believed. 
That's the mystification that Marx blamed Hegel for. He said, that's spiritualist nonsense. So I've got a quote to warm you up from Karl Marx. I warn you, reading Karl Marx is unpleasant. It's unpleasant on a variety of levels. It's hard to not just become generally grumpy and angry when you read Karl Marx, but it's also weird. Some people have said that Marx was not a very good writer. I don't necessarily disagree, but I don't fully take that view. Marx, there's another word, which I'm not supposed to say from this stage, but I'm going to, pastor and whoever else can forgive me, was a bullshitter. That's what it boils down to. He, in the more urbane speech of Eric Foglin, who I quoted last night, was an intellectual swindler. So when you're intellectually swindling somebody, you've got to jabber your jaw a whole lot to convince them of the nonsense you're saying and make it seem plausible. And Marx writes like that's what he's doing. And he writes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of this. And it's really irritating to read. So we'll start with a quote from Karl Marx about being. A being only considers himself independent when he stands on his own feet. And he only stands on his own feet when he owes his existence to himself. So we're throwing down God from the get-go with Karl Marx. This is from the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts written in 1844. Marx was 25 years old when he wrote this. It's a real pleasure to read, I tell you. He goes on to write, which I don't have on the screen, A man who lives by the grace of another regards himself as a dependent being. But I live completely by the grace of another if I owe him not only the maintenance of my life, but if he has moreover created my life. If he is the source of my life. When it is not my own creation, my life has necessarily a source of this kind outside of it. I told you it's awkward writing. The creation is therefore an idea very difficult to dislodge from popular consciousness. The fact that nature and man exist on their own account is incomprehensible to it because it contradicts everything tangible and practical life. But what Marx is saying here is visible in the part I put on the screen. It's very easy to see. Man is his own creator. And if you regard something outside of man as his creator, whether that be God or something else, then man can't be independent. He cannot be an independent being. He cannot enter into his true independent manhood as man, not as an individual man growing into manhood, as what it means to be human. He cannot owe his existence to something else because that would make him dependent on that something else. He has to be wholly independent. So anything that might be like creation has to be cast down as a mystification of reality that blinds man to his true nature, which is that he is his own creator. He means this literally. Later in the manuscripts, he writes, man is God. Wait, sorry, this is my, this is my words. He didn't write that part. I've got another quote later where he says it much more clearly. The way that I explain this, so pardon me for that, man is God in the Marxist theology. Man is his own creator. It's not quite the man, though, that you think. So if you're looking, where is the deity? Why didn't the Supreme Court nail communism? It says because it doesn't have a deity. It doesn't orient toward a theos, but it does. Man is the God. Capital M, man. All of man is the God in Marxist theology, but not quite man as he is now at any given point in the stream of history as it unfolds. Man 
as he will be when he completes himself at the end of history and actualizes his true nature is God. Man, Marx noted, recognizes himself as an incomplete being who is in the process of becoming his completed self. Just like for Hegel, God is an incomplete deity who is in the process of becoming his completed self. So the man that arrives at the end of history when he actualizes his full true nature is God. But the joke is, man is already that, but he can't realize it about himself until we get to the end of history and the contradictions are resolved. Because in between, man is dominating other men, and there are social constructions created by that that limit his ability to perceive himself as he truly is, as a creator. In fact, as his own creator, not individually, but also socially. Man as the absolute man, which Marx called social man or socialist man, arrives at the end of history. That stands in parallel to Hegel's absolute idea from which the whole of reality is supposed to establish itself in its perfected form. This is the heart of the theology of Marxism. Man is his own creator, and when he realizes his creative potential, seizes the means of production of himself, and arrives over the long process of creation and recreation, which you might hear reimagine and recreate a lot in their language, when you arrive at the end of that process, we have finally reached God in man. Not any given man, all of man, but there's no distinction because individual man and social man are the same man, an individual made to live in society. And I'll tell you how I realized that this was the God of Marxism a number, about a year and a half ago, maybe a year ago. The way I realized it was, I figured out we talk about God in, say, Christian theology as a moral lawgiver and the ultimate judge. You will stand before your maker on judgment day and you shall be judged according to your life. That's some standard, standard theology. What do you think being on the right side of history means? It means that you look backwards a couple generations and you think how backwards your, your, your grandparents were and the world was in the 1930s and you judge those people and then you look forward 50 or 80 years and you think, wow, those people are going to judge me like I judge them, how backwards and awful we actually are. Then you kick that to the end of the history. The I at the end of history, the perfect society, the man at the end of history looking back saying, did you stand with this process or did you not is your ultimate judge. And you are either on the right side of the process of moving history or you are on the wrong side. When I realized that the moral lawgiver and his role as final judge determines being on the right or wrong side of history as the I at the end of history, and the end of history arrives when the dialectical materialist process ends by all the contradictions being ended in man reaching his perfected true nature, social nature self, I realized what the deity of Marxism is. It's man as he already is without knowing it, as he will become when he fully realizes it, looking back and judging you for either progressing the dialectic, ignoring the dialectic, or resisting the dialectic that brought him to where he is always supposed to be. But for now, and then, whether we're talking about 1844 when Marx was writing these things, or today in 2022, man is incomplete. But what makes him man, as opposed to animal, 
is that man can know he is incomplete. He can become awakened to a true consciousness of his incompleteness and thus his need to complete himself and the capacity as a creator to take the actions that will complete him. He can know he is in the process of becoming the absolute man, which by the way, as far as I know, Marx never used the phrase absolute man. That's I'm projecting Hegel into Marx to make it more clear as a teaching device. Man can know that he is the creator that can recreate not only, can not only create coffees and not only create computers and not only create chairs and churches, buildings, air conditioning, <laughs> so you can live in the desert. I used to wonder, I never wondered why people came here, I wondered why people stopped here. It's hot. I mean, I'm a southerner, it's hot there, but there's water. There's a lot of water. I don't mean just the creator of things though, like air conditioning and buildings where the air conditioning works. He's the creator also of other things that he takes as his object. Within the range of his object, as we'll hear later, is society, is man himself, is him himself. You are creating yourself. Imagine that you imagine yourself to be a bodybuilder, and you go to the gym, and you pump iron, and you get huge, and you become a bodybuilder. You became a bodybuilder. You created yourself as a bodybuilder. That, but kicked out to the point where you literally change your very human nature. And he's not only that... As Marx uses the phrase, he is also the creator of his species being. In other words, what it means to be man as a species. He's reshaping the form of man itself. And you thought that we will be as God's thing was just a story. I don't have the right computer with the bite of the tree of the fruit of knowledge, but that's where this is all coming from. So Marx... Being a German, meaning entranced with the idea of a total systematic philosophy that he would be able to explain the entire world with, and also being a young Hegelian in that line of thinking, really liked Hegel's dialectic for this process of realizing one's incompleteness and capacity to recognize oneself as a creative, creative subject that might complete himself and everything around him. But he also, like I said, thought it was too mystical. We really have to focus on the idea that Marx hides his whole religious ball in the demystification of his theology. Quoting from the preface to the second edition of Capital, Volume 1, like I told you, Marx wrote a lot. The mystification, I've got this one, a slide. The mystification which dialectic suffers in Hegel's hands by no means prevents him from being the first to present its general form of working in a comprehensive and conscious manner, with him, it is standing on its head. So it doesn't present, prevent him from presenting something in a comprehensive and conscious manner, but the problem is it's upside down. It's standing on its head. It must be turned up, uh, right side up again if you would discover the rational kernel within the mystical shell. So what was at the top of our Hegelian dialectical triangle, Trinity, the idea, which stood for the approximation of God? So the idea was at the top, it's upside down, we're going to have to flip it over. We're going to have to bring it down to earth, if you will. We're going to get out of that mystical shell of ideas and idealism and an absolute idea being the structure of reality and blah, 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 but we're going to keep the comprehensive and conscious form of the dialectic as a means to transform reality. 
this is where the materialism aspect is going to get brought in. That's how we're going to stand Hegel on his head or unstand him on his head as Marx had it. The idea isn't out there, Marx said, following from Feuerbach. It's not like there's this Neoplatonist realm of forms of perfect shapes to reality, and when people are understanding them and trying to approximate them, that they create what they create in an idea space, a philosophical space, and then that flows into a state that's organized around the philosophical ideas of the time to give structure to things. No, he says, the idea actually exists in people's heads. People come before the idea. It's standing on its head. It's upside down. The idea for Marx is what, you, what people see the world and they form the idea, not that the idea is out there and we're trying to remember or recollect it. So Marx's take on Hegel is he's not quite wrong, but he missed the fact of the materialist truth because he was caught up in religious mystification. He was a theologian. Mystification for Marx takes two primary forms that are actually really the same form, religion and ideology. Religion fits actually within ideology. Ideology, for Marx, is the set of stories, mythologies, that the people in power tell themselves and everyone else about why society is structured the way that it is in the present moment and why it should stay that way. The capitalist meritocratic system is an ideological myth that people say, this is why we ordered society this way. This is why I deserve to be a have and you have to be a have not. And we tell a whole ideological story. The reason society is so legalistic and we need lawyers is because, well, we have to adjudicate these different disputes. So we need these things. This is an ideological mystification. We don't really need lawyers. They don't do productive work. We don't really need them. We, <laughs> I see some of you agree with Marx. We don't really need them because this is all socially constructed nonsense. And if man actually realized his true social nature, there would be no disputes to have to adjudicate with law. The idea of law itself, therefore, becomes a problem. And all of these things point in a single direction for Marx, is that you become able to think of yourself as an individual rather than an individual made to live in society. So what Marxism boils down to then is, like I said, Rousseau's leftism tucked into Hegel's dialectic with all as much as he could figure out how to do the so-called mystifications removed. Marx described his own idea, his own theory, Marxism as it came to be called, as the end of ideology. Ideology, all the justifications, all the stories, not necessarily ours, not fascist ideology, not capitalist ideology, not this ideology, not that ideology, all ideology. Which, by the way, you will now recognize means that Marx did not consider his ideology an ideology. He exempted himself because his is the one that ends all the ideology. And so now you can see that there's some intellectual swindling going on here, which requires thousands of pages of nonsense. But he was really down on religion because of this. So even before he wrote the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts in 1844, just to give you some more uh, temporal context, Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848, and he wrote Capital in 1867. So this is way before all that. 1843, leading into the beginning of 1844, I think it published in February, but it might have been January, he published a critique of Hegel's philosophy of the right at a book length. 
And then the economic and philosophic manuscripts, which I quoted from a minute ago, which are basically him laying out his theological doctrine before he wrote what was originally called the Communist Confession of Faith. And Engels was like, don't call it that. They might know. He didn't, I don't know if he said the might know part. <laughs> don't call it that. Call it the Communist Manifesto instead. The original title for that was the Communist Confession of Faith. But before that, he wrote the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts in late 1844, where he laid out these theological ideas, and we're going to spend most of our time in that. But before that, he wrote a critique of Hegel's philosophy of the right. And this is where probably the most famous quote you've ever heard of from Marx resides, and we're going to come to that. But he started off by criticizing religion vigorously. The entire first page uh, in a kind of expanded PDF document, so probably the first few pages in a proper book, are just relentlessly ripping religion apart. And so there I have a quote. Religion is the fantastic realization of the human essence, since the human essence has not acquired any true reality. Humans don't know what humans are. We have not acquired the true reality of what it means to be human, Marx is saying. So we create a fantastic one instead, a fantasy one. That's religion. It's a story people create to tell themselves about who we really are so that we don't have to encounter who we really are. And the reason that we don't want to encounter who we really are is because it would make us take into account the real nature of what we experience. Suffering caused by, for Marx, the division of labor. We live in a world full of suffering, and we give ourselves religion to try to cover up the pain. And in the meantime, we try to explain who we are to ourselves with religion in order that we don't think we're giving ourselves some kind of, a, I don't know, opiate to dull the pain. And so then the famous line, which you've probably heard the last sentence of, but not all of it. Religious suffering, and I have this one too for you, is at one and the same time the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. It's a refusal to experience the real suffering of your life. You give it up to God. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the distinct pleasure of having been cut on or something and have to take opiates, but you'll notice that you take your Percocet or whatever afterwards, I don't know if that's a brand name and we can't say it, but whichever ones, your, your I guess, codeines and whatever else, and you still hurt. You just don't care. You still feel the pain you just don't care that it's there. It's a really weird thing when you actually end up taking an opiate and you think, wow, I'm on hardcore painkillers. And you're like, wow, I still feel the pain. It just doesn't bother me. It's still there. You have to take other things, analgesics, to kill the pain, which sometimes work and sometimes don't. Opiates don't kill it. They make you just not care about it. Religion is what allows people to not care that they're suffering for marks. It's a story people have created for themselves so they can tell themselves we can give this up to God and we don't have to care that we're suffering even though we're aware of it. It is the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. That's his exact words. Instead of this, hiding through an opiate, 
Man is supposed to seek his true reality. In fact, that's exactly what Mark says in the next paragraph. Man must seek his true reality if he's going to be truly free or independent. Of course, that true reality is going to be absolute man in parallel to Hegel's absolute idea now stood on its head. Now, of course, this focus on suffering, like we talked about yesterday, is not accidental or incidental. It's because Marx is a Gnostic. Where Hegel is an alchemist, Marx is a Gnostic. Marx believes he lives in a world he didn't choose to live in that has imprisoned him by the conditions of that world that he doesn't like, and it sucks. And if he could just use his knowledge, he could escape. If he knew what absolute, if he has a vision or a hint of absolute knowledge, then we could escape from that condition of suffering. We arrive at that by seeking our true reality. In fact, he says the abolition of religion is the illusory happiness of the people, is the demand for their real happiness. To call on them to give up their illusions about their condition is to call on them to give up a condition that requires illusions. The criticism of religion is, therefore, an embryo, the criticism of that veil of tears of which religion is the halo. That's the next part of this very famous piece. The abolition of religion is the starting place of setting yourself free because it is the abolition of the illusion of happiness that you give yourself, which creates the demand for real happiness. That's what he says. Calling upon someone to give up their illusions forces them, if they want to stop suffering, to give up the condition that requires illusions. The world is the thing that's wrong. It creates conditions that make you have to have a religion to pretend it doesn't suck. So if we get rid of those illusions, we awaken man to his suffering, which gives him secret knowledge and insight that allows him to start the process of giving up. It's the first step. Admitting you have a problem is the first step toward recovery. Life sucks. That's the first step. There is no God, and I have... You probably won't ever hear that from this stage either. I'm paraphrasing Marx, though. There is no God to ameliorate this problem. We have to do it ourselves. We have to give up the conditions that we live in, transform the world so that we are out of conditions that require illusions in the first place, and thus demystify reality. He goes on, this whole, actually, this whole first page of this thing is something else, but we're going to try to be sparing and not read an entire page of Marx because I don't want anybody to intentionally drive into the ditch on the way home. <laughs> We've got another great quote, the criticism of religion disillusions man. So this is where you start, you criticize religion, so that he will think, act, and fashion his reality like a man who has discarded his, his illusions and regained his senses. Admitting you have a problem is the first step so that he will move around himself as his own true son, his own creator. I'm not kidding. Religion is only the illusory son which revolves around man as long as he does not revolve around himself. Now imagine if I said that this guy was a Gnostic, and I ended up giving you lots of reasons to believe he's a Gnostic, and I said that when you're a Gnostic, what you believe is that you got kicked out of the Garden of Eden because of a cheat, you took one bite of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and you kind of got to know something, and before you could get all the way there by taking a second bite, they kicked you out so you couldn't get a second bite, and thus you not only get, never get to all the way to full absolute knowledge like is your birthright, 
that would show you that you are as gods. But in fact, in addition, you'll never get a chance to touch the tree of life. We'll get you out of here before that. And what if I said that that's the Gnostic condition? If you believe, if you could find that absolute knowledge and take that second bite of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, then you could get back into the garden. And there it's your birthright. And that's the Gnostic mission. And when you get in, maybe later, you can get to that fruit of the tree of life. Which is why I don't have a graphic for this. I should have thought ahead. I thought of it about half an hour ago. There's a Time magazine cover from about two years ago that shows looks very suspiciously like a mannequin plugged into the matrix. And it says, 2045, the year man becomes immortal. So when Mike was saying earlier that 2030 is a scary year on a scarier trajectory, 2045 is the year that man becomes immortal. Presumably by using his computer device that has another bite of the fruit of the tree of knowledge on it to make himself immortal with a bite of the fruit of the tree of life. Just to draw some metaphors to freak you out. <laughs> this story has been told before. It is an old story. I've just alluded to it repeatedly. But I'll read it to you from whichever version. You guys can guess which version because you're churchies. Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. You will not certainly die if you eat of the fruit of the tree in the center of the garden, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Or as it was rewritten in 1844, the criticism of religion disillusions man so that he will think, act, and fashion his reality like a man who has discarded his illusions and regained his senses so that he will move around himself as his own true son. Religion is the only the illusory son which revolves around man as long as he does not revolve around himself. How in the world people don't realize that what Marx is explaining is the basis for a religion is kind of beyond me when I start looking at these things. He's like, let's take the snake part of the Genesis story and like do that. So why then do we think that Marx was an economic theorist at all? Well, it's because he literally talks about economics and almost everything he ever wrote, except his weird poetry to Satan that he wrote when he was like 19. And there's a reason. Now, you're not supposed to psychologize people. So guess what we're going to do? Break the rules. <laughs> Turns out, Marx did feel like he lived in a prison. It was a prison where people didn't pay all his bills for him. Marx wanted to go to the social club and spout off social theory and write lots of books about capitalism and complain about social ideas and political economy and complain about Adam Smith and complain about every other thing he could complain about and complain about Hegel and complain about everybody, complain about Feuerbach, his mentor, complain about everything. And he wanted to be justified in doing that and to be compensated for doing that. Maybe not necessarily profitably, but certainly he wanted all his bills paid, which is why his mother said, Carl writes a lot about capital. I wish he would earn some. <laughs> because he bled his parents dry. Then he bled his wife's parents dry. And he suckled off of Frederick Engel's uh, bank account teat for most of his life. When Frederick Engels' longtime love interest, we would say common law wife in modern parlance, died many years later after living together for over 20 years. They didn't marry. Carl wrote a letter of condolence that has exactly two lines of condolences followed by over 30 lines of when you send in the next check. 
So Marx wanted people to pay his bills and because he sometimes had to do things to get money, like badger his mom instead of getting a job, that held him back from writing the social theory that he wanted to do. So he believed that economics shapes the course of everyone's life and it imprisons them that they have to, I don't know, get food to eat, which reduces them, he says, in economic and philosophic manuscripts to a mere belly, an animal. Or he has to get a job and work in somebody else's machine, which reduces him to a mere machine. This is why people think he's an economist. He has a theology, and he thought that the ultimate making factor, what determines what life is really like, what limits your ability to be free, is you have to pay for stuff. So people should give him money and not hoard it. So we should be socialists where that would happen. It's not deep. It's not actually complicated. But it is still a theology. It's still Gnostic. The world sucks for Karl Marx because people aren't giving Karl Marx money. And because of that, he can't do what he wants to do all the time. He has to do work he doesn't want to do instead of work he does want to do. And he writes, the true productive work is work that man does when he doesn't need to do it. For Marx, this builds out a whole theory of sociology, how man is estranged from man, and that's in all the senses. He's estranged from the person who employs him because they have an oppositional relationship of boss versus employee. He's estranged from his co-worker because they're competing for the same small pot of resources. He's estranged from himself because he's losing himself to his job. He actually says something completely nonsensical, which is that everything man makes makes him less. Every bit of work he does, he puts some of himself in the work so he becomes less as a result. This is a demented mind. But man is also estranged from what it means to be human, which is why he said his entire project is to humanize man and to humanize society and humanize the world. But this is just being estranged from itself. This is a theology where being has been estranged from itself, what it means to be a man. The conditions we live in has estranged us from what it actually means to be a man, so we live in an, like, like in an alien world that's not our own. It's not our own creation. We're creative, but we don't live in our own creation. It feels alien. We're alienated from it. We're alienated from each other. We're alienated from our true selves, and this is where his dialectical meanderings come in because Hegel had laid out a map for how to transform the world to undo that. If there's a tornado coming, we're going to talk through it. <laughs> I didn't do it. So you can get a summary of Marx's entire project in this following remark from him. It is therefore the task of history, once the other world of truth has vanished, to establish the truth of this world. It is the immediate task of philosophy. The other world, by the way, is religion. This is at the end of this first page of this uh, critique. It is therefore the task of history once the other world of truth, religion, has vanished to establish the truth of this world. It is the immediate task of philosophy, which is in the service of history, to unmask self-estrangement in its unholy forms once the holy form of human self-estrangement has been unmasked. The holy form of human self-estrangement is religion. He uses lots of big complicated phrases to say what he means. That's why you have to read it like 11 times. The holy form, but he doesn't put quotes around holy, but the holy form of human self-estrangement is religion. It's the opium that makes him forget that he's suffering or not care. Thus, the criticism of heaven, says Marx, 
turns into the criticism of earth, the criticism of religion into the criticism of law, the criticism of theology into the criticism of politics. If we just take out the criticism words, heaven and earth are the same place, which we're going to transform into that state. Religion and law are the same thing. Theology and politics are the same thing. Does that feel like any woke religions you know? Isn't that what we've been saying for a few years, feeling around the edges of this monster? Is that they've taken politics as their religion because they feel a vacuum of religious experience? So you criticize religion and create the vacuum of religious experience and they fill it with a religion of politics? Criticism of theology turns into the criticism of politics because theology and politics are the same thing for Marx. All he's doing when he talks about his political economic theory is talking about his theology but he's used this little paragraph to create an intellectual swindle where you don't see it for that. He's not the theologian. He's ending theology. He's not the ideologist. He's ending ideology. He exempts himself from the thing. So dialectical materialism is what this project came to be named. Marx never named it dialectical materialism. It adopted that name later, and it came from Hegel's dialectical trinity. So. We'll look at that again if it's queued up. If not, you can use your imagination to remind yourself. So we have the idea giving rise to the state and the state giving rise to the spirit. And that the broken line there I didn't mention last night means revolution. So it goes up to a higher level because it's a three-dimensional picture on a flat thing. You can go read Flatland and enjoy dimensional theory. I was a mathematician. We can totally go on a tangent here if you want. But his goal is to take this image where you have the absolute idea splitting into a theoretical and practical idea that gives rise to the idea as it is in the world and the state as it is put into practice that gives rise to the conditions of the spirit where it's playing out so that this revolutionary dialectical process can spiral through history to its end. And he stands it on its head. So we go from Hegel's to Marx's. Idea or God is out. Man is his own father. The sun remains the state. Man creates the state. The state gives rise to the society, which is like the Holy Spirit. And the society makes man. But what we have over here, instead of absolute man, is what Marx called social man or socialist man. That's the divine character here. True, awakened, fully realized socialist man is the god of the Marxist religion. He arrives at the end of history. Man who is taking up the Marxist theory or the ideology, who's accepted the theory, that is the worldly mundane image of that. The goal, of course, of this process is to break the divine out of the mundane, because to bring the shards of the, the divine together and recollect them. The practical idea, or in other words, the practice of the theoretical idea, is the state. Now why, if it is that society and man are what are making each other for Marx, why, what's the role of the state here? And you see the revolution is that man gathers together and has a revolution and seizes the state. Why is it the state? Because the state represents power. Power is the object that moves the dialectic. Power is the way that society is shaped. For Marx, if we wanted to talk about the Garden of Eden, the, th the character as he saw it called God has all the power, so he's able to kick us out. But he actually explains, like I mentioned last night, he actually explains in this economic and philosophic manuscript from 1844 that the landlords and the capitalists are like little gods. They have the power. The bourgeoisie, Marx explains, the privileged in modern parlance, have the power to make history as it is. 
They have that power. That's what makes them privileged. The oppressed do not have that power. That's what makes them oppressed. They're estranged and alienated from that power. So what they're going to do if you want to make history and move Marx's dialectic is you have to have power. If you happen to be in the bourgeoisie, the upper class, the capitalists or the landowners, which he says are the same, you already have that power. But if you're excluded from it, you can only do one thing, which is to come together, form the workers' party, overthrow the existing order, and seize the means of production. Of what? Of society, which produces man. Man is the production or the, the consequence of his social circumstances for Marx. Society produces man, but by using the state as an intermediary of power, man produces society. And then the society produces man. And then the man produces society. So man as a creator, taking society and his species as his own objects, as Marx has it, man creates society, creates man, creates society, creates man, creates society in an endless dialectical loop until man and society have no distance between them any longer and they are perfectly realized as socialist man in socialist society, the man made to live in society. Perfected man made to live in perfected society. This is the theology of Marxism in an image. What, though, is this dialectical materialism that you're kind of looking at a picture of? Is it just a theory of man and society? No, it actually answers fundamental questions of life and man's role in it. Not only is there the man's role in it part, the man is to seize the means of control of production of society so he can control man. By the way, that's eugenics. When you control the production of man intentionally, that's eugenics, just pointing that out. It doesn't have to be direct, you know, like biological eugenics, but it's still eugenics. You're changing man fundamentally to be something different with a targeted endpoint. So from Engels, Engels described the thing, this is in the dialectics of nature. This is a fundamental theory of everything. It's a theology. He described what got called the dialectical materialist this way. It is an eternal cycle in which matter moves, a cycle that certainly only completes its orbit in periods of time for which our terrestrial year is no adequate measure. A cycle in which the time of highest development, the time of organic life, and still more, that of the life of the being conscious of nature and of themselves, that's man realizing who he really is, is just as narrowly restricted as the space in which life and self-consciousness come into operation. A cycle in which every finite mode of existence of matter, whether it be sun or nebular vapor, single animal or genus of animals, chemical combination or dissociation is equally transient and wherein nothing is eternal, but eternally changing, eternally moving matter and the laws according to which it moves and changes. That's the thing considered to be the definition of the, dialect, the dialectical materialism. So it's not just Man and his economic materialism that Marx was focused on that's transforming itself dialectically, literally everything in the universe is transforming itself dialectically. This is a theory of the entire operation of universe and man and man's role in it with specific duties given to man for what to do, which is to be the one who figures out the way that it moves. Mostly by claiming power through the state and pushing it along consciously toward a directed outcome which is socialism. This is a religion. It is a total explanation for the fundamental questions of life, 
in the world, man's role in them that gives rise to duties of conscience, and it is obviously a comprehensive set of thought, belief, and practices, which is the activism is the main practices. And apparently writing lots of pages and letters to get people to pay your bills for you while you write the pages. So now we know Marx's ontology of man, his theory of being. What does it mean to be a man? Man has no other creator but himself. But, and Marx and his acolytes after him spend a lot of time focusing on this to the point where I call it the existential scream of Marxism. But man is not mere animal. Animals, he explains, engage in activity not work, they don't transform their world. They conform themselves to the world. Animals are subject to the sovereignty of the order of the universe, logos. Man is actually free from that. He's different. Man has the ability to engage in conscious awareness as he engages in his work to transform the world. As a matter of fact, the most key thing that changes the world or transforms the world or means produces value or means anything that makes man who man is and what man should realize through his work is that he is able to picture what he brings into creation before he does it, whereas animals just act by instinct. So we have a quote here. We presuppose labor in a form that stamps it as exclusively human. This is from Capital. A spider conducts operations that resemble those of a weaver, and a bee puts to shame many an architect in the construction of her cells, but what distinguishes the worst architect from the best of the bees is this, that the architect raises his structure in imagination before he erects it in reality. So you picture what you want to see in the world, then you make it. This creates a dialectical, ontological process by which man can come to know who he is. I know it's a lot of big syllable words with a hyphen. George Carlin's ghost is looking down at me, upset. <laughs> if you haven't seen that, you should look it up. Political correctness. Man pictures the world he wants to make and then makes it. That makes him a creator. This is how Marx resolves that subject-object dialectic that Hegel also talked about that I mentioned last night. Man is a creative subject. He imagines the world he wants to see. And then he makes the computer that he envisioned in his mind. He produces it. He sees that it is good. And in it, he sees, wow, I made that. I am somebody who can make that. I thought of what I wanted to make, and I made it. I am creative. I have the capacity to transform dead matter from nature into something functional for man. I have humanized the nature into a thing suited for use by man. I create the conditions in which I live. And the goal of the subject-object dialectic for Marx is for man to realize that he is in this relationship. He is a subject who can create the world he wants to live in. In other words, they don't, unlike the animals which conform to the world that they're in, Marx has transformed the world to become what they want it to be. But it's not just matter that you transform. Man takes himself as his own object. Man takes his species as his own object. Man takes his society as his own object. Marx says these things over and over again. Man is a being who can envision what he wants so he can conform the world through his work to himself, not the other way around. He is above the mundane.
He is capable of transforming the world. He can humanize the world. He makes matter and other people into things that do human things for him, things suitable to him being human. He humanizes the world. He humanizes himself. He humanizes his species. He humanizes his society. And in the process, because he's a leftist, he's returning it to his true nature, which is social. Actually, it's not because he's a leftist. He's a leftist because he wanted people to pay his bills. And the true social man would just pay Marx to do whatever Marx wants to do because that's true productive work. I scrolled too far. So reading again from the EPM, from the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts, but man is not merely a natural being, he's a human natural being. That is to say, and that, by the way, emphasis that italics, Marx uses italics more than anybody I ever read. And it doesn't even make sense. That's another reason it's frustrating to read Marx. I'll try to make it clear where the italics is, but there's no real rules. But man is not merely a natural being. He is a human natural being. That is to say, he is a being for himself. He's not dependent on any creator. Therefore, he is a species being. That's a mysterious term. And has to confirm and manifest himself as such in both his being and in his knowing. So the goal of being human is to realize that you're a species being which is a being that operates in the context of being for the whole species, a collectivist. Therefore, human objects are not natural objects as they are immediately present themselves, but neither is human sense as it immediately is, as it is objectively human sensibility, human objectivity. Neither, it's hard to figure out what the heck Marx is saying sometimes, neither nature objectively nor nature subjectively is directly given in a form adequate to the human being. Man has to make nature, the world, everything that he takes as his object into something suitable for him, something good enough for him. He even talks in this, I'm not going to read the quote, about remaking the senses, the eye and the ear, so that they're made human. He compares it to not being able to appreciate music at the first, to being able to appreciate music later, to not being able to appreciate art, to understanding what you see when you look at art. You've trained the eye and the ear to become more human or to actually become human, not a crude ear, not a crude eye like an animal has. Man is a creature that has the capacity to transform himself and lift him up beyond the mere animal. We won't quite say to God because Mark said there are no gods, so he exempts himself. But he's literally talking about transforming what it means to be a man and the world so that it is all given into a form adequate to a emphasis human being. The world has to be transformed to make it human. In other words, maybe you would take the jungle and turn it into a garden that you get to be in. I don't know. You humanize that. It's like you take raw nature and you look at the messy, ugly city and you figure out how to make nature more like the city and the city more like nature. Maybe it's something like that. Work is how this is done. The liturgy of the Marxist theology is work, or as they usually pronounce it, the work, in the sense of do the work. It's interesting in German, the belief that work frees you as a man to become your true self, because the expression in German is Arbeit macht frei. Work makes free. Work frees man. And it's interesting because you would know if you've studied your Nazi history that that's what they inscribed over the entrances to some of the concentration camps like Dachau and Auschwitz, Arbeit macht frei. 
work makes free. If you don't know the history of Mein Kampf, and I don't really want to give a lecture on Mein Kampf, and I'm not even quite sure, I'm happy to admit that I've read Mein Kampf, or rewritten a chapter of Mein Kampf and got it submitted and accepted as a social work paper. <laughs> but if you read the beginning part of Mein Kampf, the first three chapters, Hitler spends an awful lot of time really angrily discussing what it's like to argue with Marxists until he says that they basically drove him over the edge. And then it takes a dark turn a few paragraphs later when he says, and then I one day realized they're all Jews. So why would he have inscribed over the concentration camps, Arbeit macht frei? Because all the Jews are communists and he hated communists because they pissed him off so much from the beginning. Arbeit macht frei is what the hammer and sickle mean. Work makes you free. Productive work. But it's only truly productive work, Mark says, when it's work you don't have to do. You're not doing it for somebody else, and you're not doing it for your belly. Stupid being hungry, or I can't just write my capital theory. Stupid hunger. So work is above activity, which is what animals engage in for Marx but it gets stolen from man by the division of labor. Work gets turned into labor, the exploitation of the working process. You see, as a creative subject, I envision what I want to create in the world, and I make it, and I'm like, wow, I'm a creator, I made that. And if you've ever made something, you feel that sense of pride. You know, if you want to get a kid to eat some new food, you get them to help cook it, and they're proud that they helped cook it, and they're like, I'll eat that. Broccoli's good all of a sudden, I cooked that, or I picked that, or whatever, they get them engaged in it. It's that kind of taken to, out on, on steroids, right? The, you, wow, I created that. That's a human, it's fit for human consumption now because I picked the broccoli myself. So that's why you need a sickle on your flag so that you can understand how good the food is when you grow it yourself. I'm not joking. But the problem is, is that let's say that I have a great farm going here and I have more work than I can actually accomplish. And I'm like, hey, y'all want a job? Tell you what. Here's a sickle, go harvest some stuff. I know you don't harvest broccoli with a sickle. You do grain, I got it. I know. I might have had to do this before. I'll pay you. I'll give you this abstract thing called money in exchange for you going and creating what I envision. You're not going to create what you envision with your work or your labor. You're not going to do work. You're going to do labor. You're not going to create what you envision. You're going to create what I envision. And I steal from you the ability to see yourself as a creator in the process. So I estrange you from your true nature. I estrange you from yourself. And I alienate you from that which you've made and that which it, what it would tell you about yourself. So I alienate you, yourself, you from yourself, which is a grievous sin, almost like a fall. Because man is forced to make what somebody else envisions or is paid to do so, and that's fake and abstract. You don't get that sense of satisfaction that you made the thing that you pictured in your mind, which is what makes you truly man and not animal. So estranged and alienated from your, cap your capacity to realize your true nature, you suffer. You're reduced to the state of being mere animal or machine, which is dehumanizing. The person who hires you, despite the fact that they gave you a good job, not only dehumanizes you by giving you a good job, but dehumanizes himself by stealing, being the kind of person who would steal your true nature for, from you to glorify himself. Look how much stuff I made, where really it was 50 farmhands that did all the hard work. I'm so great. I built this whole company, and it's really a thousand employees that did all the day-to-day -day labor. That's the way Marx is thinking about this. And this is what Marx is most famous for. But you can see the obvious Gnostic 
envy in all of it. And when I said that he sees the division of labor as the fall, he really does. He really, truly sees the division of labor as the fall. He even says that the division of labor works like the fall. That's where estrangement, that's where alienation, that's where being estranged from itself comes into the world. That's where man is torn away from his true nature. That's where man is imprisoned in the world of labor and wages and suffering and toil and alienation and estrangement and loses himself and is led to believe ideologies and religions that socially condition him so that he can't think outside of a narrow set of thoughts Society is creating man as a limited being who's trapped in his own sinful, I mean, wage labor conditions. Turns out I already said a whole lot of the things I was going to say down here, so we're going to skip forward a little bit on my notes. So this is the same dialectical process, guys. This is the same dialectical process. You have theoretical man, that's man as he's entering into the state of understanding theory. In other words, socially conscious man is theoretical man, derived from what we might call social or absolute man. But then you have practical man who's seizing the means of production of man through the state. The idea here is the way that for Marx, you overcome the division of labor fall and make your way back into the garden is that the workers realize their estrangement together. They gain class consciousness, whatever that means. They become aware of the state of estrangement and the fact that although they are in a weakened state, that if they band together, they can become great enough to effect a revolution, seize the means of control, and remake society and remake man in the social vision that they've now become conscious to. So you can actually claim power from the margin by getting collective. Imagine like a big circle. Power is in the middle. If you go look, you'll find that they have a lot of drawings where power is in the middle. And then things like capital and white and able-bodied are just a little bit out from that. And then out on the margins. But if you get everybody on the margin together, you can get them to fold the margin into the center and say, decenter whiteness. While you center marginalized voices. And that's where power is. And then you can seize the means of production of man and society from the outside by banding together in solidarity. That requires taking that second bite of the fruit of the tree of knowledge to realize that you are oppressed, that you have class consciousness. And I keep saying that. Let me actually tell you where I derived that phrase from. I didn't make that up. I'm pretty creative. Or with that whole like dog park thing. Not that creative. Turns out Herbert Marcuse, the very famous Marxist from the 1950s and 60s, the leading Marxist theorist of the 1960s for sure, in whose world we now live, but that's a talk for another time, wrote in 1955 a very weird book, a Freudian Marxist book called Eros and Civilization. It was a sexual liberation book. You can guess where that all goes. But in that book, he explicitly says the way that man is to get back into the garden is to take a second bite of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. I stole that phrase from a Marxist book. Who is telling you how you do it? And you get there by awakening to your true nature, which you realize through the fact that you're suffering because it's actually Gnostic. So theoretical man becomes socially conscious. He engages as practical man by taking over the state and creates a synthesis in a socialist society that approximates the ideal social nature of man 
and leads it through that dialectical condition of working out the contradictions bit by bit by bit as it progresses. Socialism stage one isn't quite got it right. All these people are going to starve and be slaughtered so much. We're going to refine the process. It'll work better next time. We're going to refine the process. It'll work better next time. We're going to refine the process. It'll work better next time. Eventually, man will realize his true nature. You won't need the state any longer. Vladimir Lenin said that when the state gains absolute control is when it will relinquish control because you'll no longer need it. And the end of history will arise. Social man as absolute man will realize himself as his own creator who made himself capable of living in a perfected society, which is a socialist society, and the materialist version of the Prisca Theologia will have been achieved. So it turns out it's alchemical too. Your life, you're estranged from. It's trapped in this work-made mortal or labor-made mortal coil. If you could just smash it and get the shard of the divine out, the true social consciousness, you can set it free. They all come together at the end of history, and you end up in the kingdom returned, the pure, or sorry, the, 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 the Prisca theology, the ancient theology will be realized, but now in a materialist form rather than a mystified form. So the Marxist Paulo Freire, the educator from Brazil that I keep mentioning, has a quote that makes me think of this. He says, I exist does not come before we exist, but is fulfilled in it. Let me say that again. I exist does not come before we exist, but is fulfilled in it. I exist is fulfilled in we exist. The true nature of man, your very existence I think, therefore I am. No, we think, therefore I am. I exist is fulfilled in we exist. So now you know Marx's theory of being, which obviously gives rise to the duty to practice this, so thus also a sociology, also an axiology, also some of these other pieces. We see Marx's orientation toward a divine, abstracted idea of a perfected social man who will inhabit a perfected social society. That's his deity. It will be the judge at the end of history of whether you are on the right side of the historical process or the wrong side of history. And it will judge your memory as such, good or bad, whatever that would imply, because I don't think he has immortal souls in his story. Just immortal memory. The statues you don't tear down, like Marx's. But there's a purpose to all this. Marx has a teleology, a theory of purpose for history. It is, in fact, that this occurs through the dialectical process and that man, through it, has to realize his true nature, which is social man made to live in society. This is to be done by seizing the means of production of man and society and all the derivative forms of Marxist theory kind of do this. They just differ on where the means of production are. Marx saw the means of production in economic stuff because he wanted people to give him money. The cultural Marxists were pissed off that pop culture exists, so they saw it there. Actually, the cultural Marxists saw it in hegemony in the institutions, so they saw it there. The critical Marxists saw it in the existence of pop culture, which they thought brought people into to stupidity and the inability to think in a sophisticated enough way because you're too busy enjoying your Corvette and your Hollywood films to be able to get into the deep critical theology or philosophy and overthrow society. So they saw it there. So they saw it in cultural issues and wanted to turn it over. The identity politicians or identity Marxists saw it in identity politics. The woke Marxists see it in the, the, the nature of what knowledge is. So did the postmodernists. 
but you have to seize the means of production of man and society because the axiom of Marxist theology is man creates society, creates man, creates society, creates man, creates society, until it works this time. True communism has never been tried, by the way, because it hasn't got to the point where it works this time yet. It's not true communism until it's gone through all the socialism phase. Those were just attempts to understand it, to expose new contradictions we didn't realize. So let me give you an idea, because Marx is writing this in the 1840s, Darwin's writing in the 1860s, but people are batting around the ideas of evolutionary theory and trying to figure out, Marx has already cast down religion, so he's trying to figure out how did man become what man is, how is man different from animal, why is man different from animal, what does it mean to be different from animal, and so there's these kind of national ideas, I mean people have been breeding horses, been breeding dogs, been breeding grains, been breeding things through artificial selection and changing them according to their needs and making them what they want, literal eugenics, for a while at this point, but then there's the wild, and somehow there, maybe there's this idea that Darwin's going to come up with later called natural selection. What Marx is actually saying is up to the point where Marx's theory, which he called the Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus, the scientific socialism, until that was created, society was evolving kind of organically. Stuff came up, people reacted, people did things, they did it unconsciously. They just, things happened and you react. How reactionary, the enemy of communism. But then consciousness could arrive with this Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus, scientific socialism, the true scientific, in the Hegelian sense, study of history and its causes. And then man can seize the means of production. So we shift out of society developing organically according to what's happening around it and people making decisions and taking on the charges of what's going on, and we enter into a phase of artificial selection where man is curating society to create the social conditions necessary to create man, to create society, to create man until both are perfected. That's the purpose of the Marxist religion, to get out of the idea that society is going to evolve or change or develop according to the, the winds of the times, the circumstances people are in, etc., and put it under the control of people who know where it's supposed to go, which is perfected socialism. True communism, where the division of labor has been abolished because private property has been fully transcended. So history and society have progressed, or I should say society has progressed throughout history up to the point of Marx, according to Marx, unconsciously by unconscious man until Marx comes along with his Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus, which is an awful lot like Hegel's Vernunft, the reason, the higher level theory. And so Marx offers the new true science of history, the Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus, scientific socialism. Progress, therefore, has to be seized, not by necessarily the worker, but the worker awakened to his class consciousness. The suffering of being made to do labor that teaches you the real nature of yourself and society and how you're being exploited and estranged. Those people, the most envious and aggrieved, who've had their envy and grievances awakened, like through grievance studies, are to seize the means of production of society. And in their consciousness, they're now going to not direct society randomly through history, but toward its directed purpose. The talos of history. Ontology of man, talos of history. Now we've covered them both. Sounded hard, wasn't hard. It's literally just replacing the development of society with artificial selection of society towards socialism. That's it. 
and they, the enlightened people who have some glimpse of absolute knowledge, in other words, the Gnostics, are the ones who are going to guide it. And the method they're going to use is the alchemical dialectic to transform society, which he just ripped off from Hegel. So it's Rousseau tucked into the Hegel box and presented in a materialist form so that the mystification is hidden from you. So this gives you all the pieces. We hear, obviously, the ontology, the theory of being. It's a metaphilosophical system. It's a, it's a broad system that unifies and orients other, theology, or other philosophies. Theory of being, theory of knowledge, theory of purpose, theory of values, theory of society, and orients them toward a divine, a perfected purpose of history. You can see the ontology and the teleology, we went over those. The axiology, the values, value is created by doing productive work, which is not labor, it's the productive work of actually seizing means of production to direct history toward its ideal social end. Value is produced by advancing Marxist theory and practice, in other words. That which is good is that which advances Marxism. Everything else is on the wrong side of history. There's, so there's a theory of value that gives you a theory of ethics that informs your theory of sociology and structures it to where there are the good people and the bad people in relentless class antagonism across whichever stratification theory of society that you're applying, economics, racial, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of that trappings is details that don't have much to do with the theology, but just its expression in different domains. But it also has a theory of knowledge. It has a weird definition of truth. The truth, according to Marxism, is Marxism. The Wissenschaft Lieker Socialismus is the tr one true study of history and its causes and the conditions of man and how they shape man and society. That which advances the dialectical materialism in theory and practice is therefore true. So we go to Marxists.org, one of the most useful websites in the entire world, believe it or not, because they use, what did I say yesterday? Marxists share your vocabulary, but they don't share your dictionary. And it turns out that they're obsessively proud of their weird definitions and they write them down. And there's a huge glossary on there that has like a thousand entries on it and you can actually read what they think about different ideas. The actual marxists.org. You can go there and find it yourself. And here's a quote from the entry for truth. Their definition for truth. Truth is usually taken to mean correspondence of an idea to the world outside of thought. In other words, it's real. It's an accurate reflection of the real world. They call it the correspondence theory of truth. However, following Hegel, Marxists take truth to be something that may be said of a, of a social formation or of social practice itself. Truth is socially constructed. The people in power get to decide what's gonna be called true and false, and they're gonna arrange what the definitions of true and false such that they maintain their power. And the people that have other ideas like Marx's Wissenschaft, Leitcher, Socialismus, are going to be excluded from knowledge. He says, goes on, the truth of a social practice is always relative. Since, as Goethe said, all that exists deserves to perish. Charming idea at the center of Marxism. Turns out Goethe was Marx's favorite poet. His favorite story or poem, epic poem, was Faust. I don't know if you know the story of Faust, but we'll do a quick, quick summary. Faust is a guy. 
He decides that things aren't going great for him, so he's going to make a deal with the devil. Mephistopheles appears, gives him all these powers, but the trick is when you make a deal with the devil, it doesn't work the way you think. You don't just die and go to hell at the end, at the end of whatever the devil decides is the range of your contract. He cheats you, and you maybe go into, I don't know, a dementia state, doddering presidential form and sputter. Marx's favorite person to quote from Faust was not Faust, it was Mephistopheles, the voice of the devil. Marxists say that truth is something that's said of a social formation or a social practice itself. It's socially constructed, in other words. The truth of a social practice, though, is always relative. Relative to what for a Marxist? Well, they have the only true study of history, don't they? So relative to what they say it is. Since, as Goethe said, all that exists deserves to perish. Sooner or later, everything turns out to be false. Everything turns out to be false. Remember, we're throwing down God from the beginning. Reality itself is going to have to turn out to be false. I think it was apparently funny that I said twig and berries yesterday, but the imprisonment in your own body turns out to be false. Men and women being different turns out to be false. In the end, Everything turns out to be false because it is false? No, because all that exists deserves to perish. Pure destruction. Some philosophical currents, they tell us, believe that truth, or sorry, the truth of an idea can be established by logical deduction from clear ideas. In general, each current has its characteristic criterion for truth. He doesn't mention, the, or they don't mention this being the website, the... Uh, religious definition of truth, but you guys are familiar with that. But he starts off by saying, for rationalism, it is reason. For empiricism, it is observation and experiment. Remember, that was Feynman yesterday. If it disagrees with the experiment, it is wrong. All of science is contained in that simple observation. It doesn't matter how beautiful your theory, doesn't matter who said it. If it disagrees with the experiment, it's wrong. That's just empiricism. That's just one theory of truth. There are others. Pragmatism makes practice the criterion for truth. In other words, that which works is true. But like empiricism, pragmatism knows only immediate individual action and misses the cultural and historical content of the social practice. In other words, it doesn't have the Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus guiding it. That which works is true, but unlike a mere that which works is true, it should be guided toward the purpose of history. That's what's true. In other words, QED. For Marxism, truth is Marxism, and that which advances Marxism. Of course, I said that gives us a value system. That which is good is that which advances the dialectic, that which breaks open the mortal coil that we're trapped in through the division of labor as the fall of man and allows us to free ourselves as conscious subjects a little bit more so that those pieces can come together and social man can realize that he's social man and create the perfect society, kingdom come, that will be done by men. Because the criticism of heaven is the criticism of earth. Consciousness is good, meaning self-consciousness, meaning Marxist self-consciousness, but everything else is false consciousness is bad. Activism that's informed by the theory, putting that into practice, is good. Reflection on the theory to re-evaluate uh, and inform your next bit of activism is also good. Liberation from all constraints upon your uh, subjective range 
is good. So when you hear them talk about liberation, what are they being, wanting to be liberated from? When I say that the answer is reality itself, I actually mean it. They say it's liberation from all oppression, but reality oppresses you. Your twig and berries are a problem. The physical limitations of your body are a problem in queer theory. The idea that anything is considered normal is a problem in queer theory. Reality itself is a limitation on your subjective range. Because remember, Marx's theory of how humans work is that they can envision what they want in their imagination and then create it in the world. Anything that limits that, normally it's social constructs. Oh, society says you have to be this way. Society says you have to eat. Society says you have to work. Society says you have to do this. Society says you have to dress that way. Society says that you can't loaf around in no clothes with boils all over your body because you've rejected bathing, as Karl Marx did, and bum money off of your mom constantly for the rest of your life if you want to be a productive member of society. So you have to do stuff you don't want to do. That's imprisonment. It limits the range of what you could possibly imagine being or doing. But it turns out reality itself, through the sovereignty of Logos, also limits the subjective range of what's acceptable and possible. So if your body becomes a limitation to what you can envision yourself to be, you have to transform your body. Transition it from one state to another. Never actually being what you've transformed it into, but becoming in a perpetual state of becoming that which you're transitioning into. I told you, everything that seems super weird, like 12-year-olds wanting to uh, cut off their genitals, makes sense when you understand it in terms of a Marxist theology. But for Marx, the value is located in the work, like the work you do on your body to do the transition, to transform it into the, the body you imagine yourself to have. The liturgy of this religion is the work. Do the work. George Floyd died, do the work to overcome your racism, to become an anti-racist in a lifelong process, ongoing process, I should say, a lifelong commitment to an ongoing process of self-reflection, self-critique, social activism, when no one has ever done. Thought, theory, practice, reflection, over and over and over again, do the work to transform the world, to transform the self, to transform mankind, transform the society he lives in. The sociology of this I mentioned earlier is conflict theory. It is equipped with standpoint consciousness. You've probably heard the words, thanks to all the churches talking about it, standpoint epistemology over the last couple of years, fancy words that people didn't want to have to learn and shouldn't have had to learn. The idea is that society is broken into the haves and have-nots. Everywhere you can find an axis of power that's created by the false gods of the people who have advantage, the privilege, the privileged people, you have a stratification. We're in Arizona, so there's rocks. You know what that looks like. Different layers stratified on top of one another. There's the upper classes and the lower classes. They're in intrinsic antagonistic conflict with one another. One another. This actually generates, the through the master-slave dialectical process we discussed yesterday, a consciousness of what it's like to be exploited, to be alienated, to be uh, estranged from your being in the people who suffer from this arrangement. So you have a standpoint consciousness you don't know what it's like to be me, so as a black man, blah, 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 but as a man, I defer myself to the women in the crowd who blah, blah, blah. That was a paraphrasing of Jarvis Williams. 
from your Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Mike can probably play the quote for you if you want to hear it from him. That's enforced, like I said, by a mystification called an ideology. Religion is tucked within the ideology. The ideology is the religion of society. The postmodernists called this a meta-narrative. Cultural Marxists talked about it in terms of cultural hegemony. It's a story we tell ourselves about why the world is the way that it is. But the underclass, the marginalized, the oppressed, don't have the power to create that story or tell that story or move history with that story. Only the upper class can do that. The upper class for Marx was organized into a working principle that it called the superstructure of society. And in the superstructure, you get to tell the ideology and live within the ideology and shape society from, with the, from, from the uh, proclamation of the ideology. The lower class, though, does work on nature itself. It turns the wood into the desk. This produces value out of their work, which is being stolen by the upper class so that they don't have to do productive work and they can be things like lawyers or priests, but not Marxist theorists because they're very important, pay my bills. But that's the infrastructure. The people who do the productive work are the infrastructure, the people who lord over them with their rationalizations and justifications for why they get to have a better life are the superstructure. Superstructure and infrastructure in a stratified situation are in a dialectical antagonistic relationship of conflict, which creates as a dialectical synthesis, remember I said they just hyphenate things, structural conditions. The dialectical relationship, in other words, the spirit aspect, that third piece of the dialectic for this infrastructure, superstructure dialectic, the theory and practice side, the ideologists and the people who do the actual work, theory, practice, creates a structure to society. You've heard this. Maybe white people have access to a special kind of property called whiteness. They granted themselves access to this, and they used that construction and an ideology of white supremacy to exclude people of color from it, who are therefore marginalized and exploited through things like cultural appropriation, where the cultural products are stolen and turned white for the profitability and enjoyment of white people to their loss of their own identity, their own ability to see themselves as a subject. Kim Larry Crenshaw says the statement, I am black, is an anchor for subjectivity. That's why it should be embraced over, I am a person who happens to be black. And what does this produce? You have white people who have access to whiteness. You have capitalists who have access to capital. They exclude people of color or the proletariat from that state. And it creates a structure to society. Structural classism, structural racism, structural cis-heteronormativity. Where the people who have access to normalcy exclude the queers. That's a technical term, not a slur. They are the people who have politically oriented themselves in rejection of the normal, in defiance of the normal. And there's structural cis-heteronormativity that seeks to constrain them, to tell them that if you were born with two X's on your chromosomes, then you're probably going to be a woman. And if you were born with an X and a Y, then you're a man, and you're just going to have to kind of deal with some of that, because that's reality. And the structural conditions limit the range that you're able to conceive of what it means to be you. 
black people, according to Kimberly Crenshaw and critical race theory, can't think of what it's like to be a person because they have imposed upon them the race black, so they have to think of themselves as a black person first, and then a person second, and then they can start working that out, which she says they are therefore forced to lean into by the structural racism of society that's not necessarily perpetrated by any people being racist, as Jarvis Williams told us, but by the existence of the social structures themselves, which are these weird, tenuous, invisible concepts that actually arise from the interplay of there being two classes in the first place that are intrinsically an antagonism. That's Marx's sociology. It's intrinsically conflict-oriented between groups where it's said that the upper class creates the conditions that imprison the lower class and they have to fight over things one another and the entire society is structured to keep them stuck in that condition. So when I gave in uh, race Marxism the definition that critical race of critical race theory that it is a belief that the fundamental organizing principle of society is racism that benefits white people, I'm not kidding, that's all it is. Because society creates man, creates society, creates man, creates society. But if you operate this with control of the conscious, the anti-racists, the queer theorists, the Marxists, then you can, you can drive history toward its intended purpose at the end of history where all of that is undone and we achieve communism or, finally, justice. The absolute man who is absolutely just, you know, like a god, at the end of history is the divine character in this religion, this theology. So now we have the theology of Marxism pretty clearly laid out. Marxism is a theology. Man is his own creator. He's incomplete as he is, but becoming toward his completion through transition of himself. Division of labor is the fall. Marx had a whole historical process that he laid out. History, his scientific study of history ran through six phases, he said. Way back at the beginning of time, the beginning, you had all these little tribes and they were communistic. They shared. They weren't estranged from one another. They didn't exploit one another within the tribe. They just were estranged from one another. They didn't know one another. And if they ran into each other, sometimes they went to war because they didn't realize that they were seeing their brothers. So you had local communism. But then the tribes started to overrun one another and a second phase of history entered where they enslaved members of other tribes in order to do their work for them. The more powerful tribe was like, well, there's all this stuff we have to do every day that sucks. Those guys, we're going to kill them and we're going to make them do it. And the slave economy enters as the second phase of history. But that gets realized not to be that great, and people won't put up with slavery for terribly long, and they go off to another stage where you now have these grand people that run land estates, the aristocrats, big feudal estates, and you have an estate economy, and it's all run by the farmers and the serfs and the people who say, well, we'll do all your work for you so you can eat lords and ladies without having to do anything. All you bourgeois merchants that are selling stuff can grift off of this. And this is the conditions that Rousseau was complaining about and that Marx was looking back upon in the third stage of history in this estate economy. The serfs are doing all the work, the, the, the royalty are taking, the aristocrats are taking all the spoils, and the merchants are grifting off of it. Third stage of history. But eventually people are like, wait a minute, why don't we have, like Michael was talking about with this progression earlier through the Reformation and the birth of the different uh, revolutions uh, in history, especially the Scottish and then American enlightenment and revolution, what we end up with is, wait, I can have a bit of my own, life, liberty, property, inalienable rights, and capitalism comes into being. Everybody gets to be their own self. Marx is really not down with this whole thing. This produces individuation. Individuation is estrangement. 
But a fourth stage of history in capitalism, still pregnant with contradictions, comes into being. And then the fifth stage of history for Marx is you're going to move that into a socialist state where the conscious have seized the means of production, and they're going to continue in a socialist simulation of communism, enforced redistribution of material goods, enforced redistribution of cultural values, enforced redistribution of identity, political access, whatever it happens to be, enforced redistribution of what's considered knowledge, until, finally, a just, truly just, stateless, classless society emerges after the state relinquishes power and withers away in its own redundance after a total dictatorship and global communism where you get back to the original state of man, communist, but now made to inhabit a global society emerges. No longer tribes estranged from one another, but got it right, the whole planet getting it right together. But you have to just force people to do that for a period together. Like I said, theory then, well, I didn't say this part, theory then becomes the catechism and work becomes its liturgy. Do the work as its soteriology. Your salvation is done by doing the work. Arbeit macht frei. Work makes free. Do the work. Free yourself from the limits of your subjective experience so that we can emancipate man, so that everybody can live like Marx, not get a job, and can paint pictures, and make crappy art, etc. But it turns out that in that enforced stage five on the way, well, you've got to understand what the value of real work is. So we're going to just drag you out of your artist studio, kid, and stick you in a field with a hammer and a sickle, and make you do back-breaking work, and make you make steel, and make you do all kinds of terrible things, and force you to milk cows even though you don't want to milk cows and you're not good at it. And when you suck at it, we're going to kill you. And if you're not good at all this and you don't believe it's how it works, we're going to re-educate you to program you. Gulags weren't concentration camps like the Nazis had. Gulags were re-education camps to teach you the true meaning and value of productive work so that you could learn that Arbeit macht frei. And then you would learn that the true society works when everybody does their part. Somebody has to like milking cows and go around and milk the cows for everybody. As my plumber came the other day and I was thinking while he was there, I was thinking, you know, this guy probably doesn't go fix pipes because he likes to fix pipes. He might like to fix pipes. He might tinker around and fix pipes in his spare time all day long. I don't know. But I bet you he doesn't come to my house and work on my toilet, which goodness knows what's been in there. Anybody has toilet? Because he wants to, because it's for the good of common society. The greater good is fixing my toilet. It's paying my bills. No, it's not. It's because I'm willing to give him a, a piece of abstract symbolism that, that has exchange value, that he can go and then trade for things that he wants in life. He can sacrifice some of his work to satisfy a need that I have, and in exchange, I'll give him something for the value of his work that he can go and satisfy his own wants. And this is the actual thing that Marx thought was terrible. But you set yourself free by doing the work and being forced to learn how to do the work in order to make the society flourish because you want to do the work. Because if you were doing it because somebody wanted you to do it or because you're hungry or because uh, you're getting paid to do it, that's not really productive work that brings out your true creative essence. The purpose, the mechanism of the purpose is to seize the means of production so he can complete the talos of history. Now this creates an interesting situation. I did that historicism, stages one through four, and then that's where we get to that wiggly line on my graphic, which is revolution. And those, as Michael was talking about earlier, are pretty brutal, pretty bloody. 
Bolshevik Revolution, not good. French Revolution, not good. Even the American Revolution, which had, turns out, the establishment of a functional society was pretty bloody. These things aren't actually that smooth. But what revolution represents for the socialist is a complete break from the control of the means of production by people who are unconscious to how it works in terms of its purpose of history to the being handed over to the people who are conscious of its purpose. A complete break. A rapture. And then you have this part where you're trying to get to the kingdom, but it kind of sucks. It's sort of like a tribulation. And at the end of the tribulation, the kingdom arrives. When the garden is remade in and with knowledge of what it is supposed to be and who is supposed to inhabit it. This religion also has a theodicy, a theory of evil. Evil is resisting or hindering any of this. That's not usually what a theodicy means. It's an explanation for why there's evil in the world. There's obviously things, there are good and bad people still, but there's a lot of apparent evils that go along with these revolutions, like, I don't know, 100 million people dying brutally or starving. Accelerate the contradiction, said Lenin, meaning starve the people so they'll realize the contradictions of their life. Blame the capitalists for their starving. Blame Putin for all the bad things while you force more and more contradictions on their life and scapegoat it somewhere else. It wasn't the party doing it, it's somebody else. Why is all this evil happening? Why did these regimes collapse? Why did they cause so much suffering? Why are they so evil? Why did Khrushchev have to come out and apologize for the sins of, of Stalin? And that's because each stage of this was an attempt to implement the imperfect theoretical idea in practice. And since the contradictions weren't all figured out, they were going to manifest. So all those millions dead died in the cause of revealing the contradictions so that the next time will work better. Why do these things seem so bad? Why is there so much bad stuff happening on the path to communism in the socialist enforced state? in the attempt to have the revolution, through the revolution, through the tribulation of socialism? Why is it so evil? Why is there so much evil in the world when it's not just somebody else's fault? Because we're exposing the contradictions. As Hegel said, and I've got this one, just I want you to really look at this. And Marx adopted, remember history moving is one of the major objects we're here, we're using here. I'll let you just stare at that for before I say it. History uses people and then discards them. History uses people and then discards them. You'll notice if you're a Christian that we often say that God uses you for this, God uses you for that, but nowhere in your theology is God discards you after he got his purpose out of you. The Hegelian Marxist theology has history uses people and then discards them. So let me show you an example. The feminist movement, the women's movement, which viewed women as a class, just like Marx said we have to have class consciousness, if viewed women as a class, their intrinsic nature is in their class. That's why, like I said earlier, with the Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing, the trial being decided the way that it was, the verdict, we had um, feminists writing articles that this hurts women as a class because it threatens the Me Too narrative. Believe all women falls apart. And there you have a very prominent case of can't believe a woman. In fact, she mocked and taunted Johnny Depp, saying, go ahead, tell your story. See who believes you. Believe all women. That hurts women as a class. Well, feminism, obviously, was a big deal. 
feminism moved this ball in the identity politics uh, domain way downfield, as we all know. But you'll notice that the feminists today feel almost like a kind of ally to the people that are resisting the new woke movement. Because the feminists are stuck. Because you can't be a feminist supporting women if you don't know what a woman is. Queer theory has risen up from within sex-positive radical feminism and consumed it from within. And now, women are being pushed out of women's sports by men. Women are being uh, raped in prison by men claiming to be women. Basically, all the advances of women are being subsumed back to men, and the patriarchy was very tricky and got a hold of them in the end by men that put on a dress. And the poor feminist movement, but what do we tell them? Because they're Hegelian. History used you and now it's discarding you. Sucks for you. And so the dialectic progresses. Which, by the way, in a large percentage of their books, you will find some weird description. And then, and so the dialectic progresses. Critical Race Theory and Introduction has that, for example, in it in case you wondered if it's, uh, there's any continuity of dialectical thought. So here we have an obvious system of thought, belief, and practice, so a meta-philosophical system that obviously gives answers to fundamental questions about the universe in dialectical materialism, life, and man's role in it, that gives obvious rise to duties of conscience to, ed to engage in theory and practice to advance this dialectical process toward its intended history-ending point, the omega point, in other words, to make it so, you must engage in a lifelong commitment to an ongoing, the uh, an ongoing process of self-reflection, self-critique, and social activism. We have an obvious religion, and the theory behind that religion is an obvious theology. So again, I'll say this, man is the god in the Marxist theology. Not quite man as he is at any given point in the entire stream of history, including now, man as he will be when he completes himself at history's end and actualizes his true nature, which he already is but cannot realize about himself until we get to that point because the division of labor, the fall of man, has limited his subjective range to prevent him from understanding that about himself. Man as the absolute man at the end of history, socialist man who inhabits socialist society and stands in parallel to Hegel's absolute idea from which the whole of reality establishes itself is this deity. But for now, man is a unique being in that he's incomplete, knows he's incomplete, and can become conscious of his incompletion and the fact that he can do the work on himself, his species, his society to complete himself. And what makes man human is that he can know this about himself and thus simultaneously become, be in the process of becoming himself, his true nature, which fully transcends the idea of private property entirely because Marx didn't want to pay his own bills. That's your theology of Marxism. It's a religion. Thank you. Thank you.